0: You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives and panel discussions that feature the RoomNow faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Aurelionage from Glasgow reporting for RUMNOW. I'm really enjoying myself so far. I have seen a lot of nice presentation and um, I hope you do too. See, there have been so much uh, things presented on Jack inhibitors um, and especially on safety. Um, but today I wanted to speak uh, to you about this abstract um, that I found quite interesting. You know, uh, it's number 1442. And this abstract was specifically um, looking at... Um, Jack inhibitors, um, cycling and switching, uh, especially in patients that are already failing a first Jack inhibitor. Um, and I think, you know, this is the $1 million question now. Your, your patient is, is not responding to a Jack inhibitor. What are you going to do? Are you going to go for a second one? Are you going to change for Biodemart, another one? But you know, most importantly, often these patients already have failed fuser biodemars. So I think this is quite a helpful um, a study, you know, and, and 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 to answer this question, um, this study was called Jackpot, And actually, it was a collaborative um, effort looking at data from 14 uh, registries of patients on jack inhibitors. So it was not ARCT, it was an observational study. Um, they looked into seven plus, 700 plus patients um, that failed or stopped a jack inhibitor for um, adverse events. Um, and um, 20% of them were actually starting a second jack inhibitor, while 80% were starting another DMARD. So the first thing that is quite important uh, to, to um, summarize from that study is. Uh, why would someone give a second jack inhibitor? In which circumstances? Well, actually, in these um, registries, at least, um, the um, prescription of a second jack inhibitor was associated with a few things. First of all, patients were older, they had a longer disease duration, but also, and importantly, they had failed more um, other biologic DMARs. Um, than the group that was starting in ozibiodemart. But also they had a longer duration of the first drug inhibitor, which may be suggestive that it was actually efficient. Now, uh, the main results uh, of this study was that actually the maintenance and the retention of the secondly prescribed drug, whether it's a second drug inhibitor or a biodemart, was actually similar. And all patients, not all patients, but I mean, the same amount of patients in both group was actually improved. Um, This is improving this activity at one year. Now, the other thing was there was a trend towards a lower retention of the jack inhibitor when the first one was stopped for adverse events. I mean, I'm not really surprised about that. Uh, you can imagine if someone has an adverse event at one jack inhibitor, they might have one at the second one. Um, but um, then also there was a higher um, retention of jack inhibitors when the first one was stopped for low self-efficacy. Well, so what really does this study tell us? Um, I mean, so far it seems that the two strategies um, of prescribing either another jack inhibitor or another bio- biologic after um, first jack inhibitor failure um, are valid. Now, is there anyone that is best than the other? Difficult to tell. I think we really need randomized control trials to best define our future strategies, but I think it's the first step towards maybe better defining um, what we should do after um, first jack failure. Um, that's it for me for today. I really um, hope you enjoy the rest of your Congress. I invite you to go on the web now for more uh, rheumatology content. And I invite you to follow me on Twitter, Aurélie Raimo. Thank you.
0: This is Dr. Maral Al-Ramahi reporting to you on Virtual ECR Convergence 2021. Do you use RAPID-3 in psoriatic arthritis? Well, abstract 0633 shows a strong agreement between RAPID-3 remission scores with DAPSA and CDAPSA when redefining the RAPID-3 score categories. So they redefine the categories so that less than or equal to three represents remission. A Rapid Three score between three to eleven represents low disease activity, and a Rapid Three score between twelve to fifteen represents moderate disease activity. Whereas a Rapid Three score above sixteen represents high disease activity. Rapid Three is a very simple uh, tool to use as a disease activity me- measure, as we know in rheumatoid arthritis. But it would be very simple to use in psoriatic arthritis, and that it can be completely uh, it can be completed entirely by the patient. So. Is this practice changing? I think so. We need more studies to validate this, but yes, potentially so. And I know I would be using it a lot more for the purpose of monitoring psoriatic arthritis disease activity. This is Dr. Mural Ramahay reporting to you on ACR Convergence 2021. Be sure to check out roomnow.com for more captivating coverage on ACR Convergence.
2: Hi, my name is Akhil Sue, reporting for Room Now from Galveston, Texas. Today, I wanna talk about herpes zoster and rheumatoid arthritis. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis are at increased risk for herpes zoster. Herpes zoster or shingles is caused by reactivation of the varicella zoster virus. Shingles can be extremely painful and debilitating. And this leads to the question, what is the clinical and economic impact of herpes zoster in patients with rheumatoid arthritis? As abstract 981 by Singer and colleagues explored, in this question, using a large administrative claims database, they identified patients with herpes zoster and rheumatoid arthritis, as well as rheumatoid arthritis alone, for comparison. And the outcomes measured were healthcare resource utilization and healthcare costs. And the results were striking. Up to one year from the time of diagnosis, patients with rheumatoid arthritis and herpes zoster had greater healthcare resource utilization. This included visits to the emergency room, visits to the clinic, and visits to the hospital. And healthcare costs were also significantly greater. What can we take away from these findings? Prevention of herpes zoster is extremely important, and as clinicians, we need to ensure our patients are up to date with immunizations. For more coverage, please go to roomnow.com. Thank you.
1: Hi everyone, this is Dr. Aurélie Najm from Glasgow uh, reporting for RUMNOW at ICR, ICR 2021. Today, I have the great privilege to be with Professor Ernest Choi um, we, we, from Cardiff. We had, you know, during this conference, a lot of um, data coming about jack inhibitor safety, uh, especially to facilitate with the oral surveillance um, data presented yesterday at the plenary session. So, um, what are your thoughts on, on all these? Uh, so, uh, So, number
3: one, I think. In order to interpret the oral surveillance data, we should understand the trial in context. So, obviously, oral surveillance is a safety trial. So, and it is event driven and is looking at potential adverse events in a high risk group of patients. So, it, it is selective. High risk patients, so it's not absolutely hundred percent representative of every single patient that we see in clinical settings. So that is an important context. The second thing uh, is that the safety signal was in comparison with TNF inhibitor. And I think in the session we just heard from the FDAs, some of the thinking and guidance is based on the fact that if one has a choice between JAK inhibitor and TNF inhibitor, with the current level of evidence, they are giving a guidance that perhaps we should try a TNF inhibitor first. And in the session, they were pretty clear they think that JAK inhibitor should be used after TNF inhibitor failure patients. So that provides the context of benefit versus harm. Uh, I think it's also important to say that my interpretation of the oral surveillance data is that uh, the relative risk against TNF inhibitor was shown in the study against a various uh, number of adverse events, but the absolute risk remains very small. So there's a relative increased risk compared with TNF inhibitor, but if you look at the absolute event rate, it is still small. So it's a manageable risk. So in the patient, who cool. you don't have a choice of choosing TNF inhibitor, the choice of a JAK inhibitor would be appropriate because the, the benefit outweigh the small increase in risk. And I think this is the FDA's interpretation of the risk. So it's not that it is an enormously risky drug that we need to withdraw the treatment Um, obviously we need to think about what do we do in high-risk patients, patients who have a previous uh, risk factor. And I think that depends on what the patient had tried before. So we all know that some patients are highly refractory, they have tried multiple treatment. If they're getting benefit, and as long as they understand there's a small increase in risk, the patient may choose to continue with treatment, just accepting that. That risk because untreated RA is associated with higher mortality and mobility. So that is one extreme. But if the patient has lots of risk factors and there are other options, then the choice is a different one. So I think ultimately, this is going to be a decision based on shared decision-making between clinicians and patients. It's not that Jack and are all bad. Uh, There's some risk, like or treatment, is about how to assess the benefit versus the risk.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I'm gonna be like almost a bit provocative here, but can we even compare what based on what you were saying, not based on what you're saying, but like thinking of the idea that uh, it's compared to TNF inhibitors. Could we not consider maybe or suppose that maybe TNF inhibitors reduce cardiovascular risk and maybe not JAK inhibitors increase it? Would that be something we could maybe consider? What do you think about that?
3: Well, that is a very good point, and obviously, there are lots of evidence that TNF inhibitors do reduce uh, cardiovascular risk. Um, So it is fair enough to say that perhaps the effect of drug inhibitors on cardiovascular prevention is only marginally less than TNF inhibitor. That would be uh, one uh, interpretation. I think slightly more challenging would be to think about the other side effect profile like VTE or, uh, or malignancy. So I think because it's not just one particular side effect profile, but the number of risk factor is a little bit hard. But what you said is definitely true, that active rheumatoid arthritis is associated with many risk factors, increased cardiovascular mortality, people can get infections, and they can have increased risk of lymphoproliferative disease. So, because our surveillance is a relative comparison, we don't have a placebo-treated patient in this group. Uh, It is is why they decided that it's not bad enough for us to think about, it's such a bad drug, we need to withdraw it, but if you have an option, then perhaps you should try TNF inhibitor first. Definitely.
1: Thank you. And I think it's great also that you have these insights, you know, from uh, maybe uh, regulatory um, bodies as well. Uh, I'm wondering, should we uh, maybe start thinking about stratifying our patients in our practice when it comes to, you know, first drug or maybe after a biologic failure? Should we think, oh, right, maybe in that patient that is, you know, 65 years old smoker, maybe we should go for a second biologic and not a jack inhibitor. Could that be something that we would need to implement maybe in practice?
3: Well, definitely at the ACR we saw many subgroup analysis of oral surveillance and patients who are at high risk of adverse event tend to at high risk. So older patients, and there are many subgroup analysis of patients who are over 50, who are smokers, who seem to have a higher risk. Um, And of course, we know that people who have a previous adverse event are always at risk of another serious adverse event. And in fact, uh, we, we presented a study a few days ago looking at whether inflammatory arthritis patients are at risk of uh, severe outcome. And guess what? If they have a previous serious infection, it automatically predicts them having a worse outcome. is a slightly, uh, sort of scientifically intuitive argument. If you're at risk, then you're always at greater risk. So, so I think that is a very good question. I think the, the, the issue is that we don't have an absolute threshold because many of our patients have multiple risk factors, so they don't always operate on its own. So I think at this moment in time, we know some of the risk factors and it's going to be something that we need to work on. I mean, for sure, uh, getting patients to lose weight, getting them to stop smoking is going to be very important for the general health. I should also emphasize that I think in the FDA's discussion, they are not saying that they know for sure that the uh, the this side effect in oral surveillance is considered a class effect. But what what they have said is that because they share similar of similar mechanism of action, at least some, then. Until there are definitive evidence that this is not a class effect, they will consider it as a class effect at this moment in time.
1: Right, That is a very important point, actually. Thank you for raising that. Um, I, just for our audience, very briefly, I realized that I have not given any abstract numbers, so very briefly uh, for everyone. Uh, oral surveillance yesterday on uh, maize and, and TOFA was abstract 958. And tomorrow, um, oral surveillance on cancer is 1940 and on MVT is 1941. Um, and uh, I mean, um, Professor Shari, thank you so much. Okay, you're think, welcome.
3: Nice talking to you. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> Likewise. Bye. Bye.
4: Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm a consultant rheumatologist uh, from the United Kingdom, reporting here at ACR21 for Room Now. And today I have a great pleasure of uh, having Professor Oliver Fitzgerald, a key opinion leader in the field of uh, psoriatic arthritis, joining me here for a discussion about some of the highlights from ACR21. So, uh, Professor Fitzgerald, welcome to uh, this interview.
5: Thank you very much, and, Tony. Uh,
4: One of the highlights that we've seen at the ACR21 conference are the new therapies in psoriatic arthritis. And I was very interested to read uh, your work on um, the TIC2 inhibitor, Ducrabacitinib in PSA, uh, that is uh, POSTER 490. I wonder whether you could um, give us some key highlights from the study.
5: Sure, so um, the POSTER is a a product of work um, done on the phase two trial of ducravacitinib in psoriatic arthritis. And the the results of that trial were reported at the same session by uh, Philip Meese. So essentially, um, ducravacitinib is a highly selective um, TIC2 inhibitor, which um, in the phase two trial proved uh, to be effective for a, a number of the um, Uh, domains that are important in patients with psoriatic arthritis with duacrabazidinib resulting in improvements in both joint uh, and skin domains in addition to uh, domains like enthesitis, HACDI, and uh, some of the uh, patient reported outcomes uh, were also uh, significantly improved in the um, treated patients as compared to the placebo treated patients. Um, so a, a nice, nice positive, um, nice positive study. And I guess what this particular poster is focusing on are the effects of um, ducravacitinib on disease markers and tyrosine uh, kinase-2 mediated pathways. Um, so um, the initial um, Markers that they were interested in looking at included um, those uh, mediating signaling of IL 23 uh, and type 1 interferon, which are um, in particular targeted by uh, the TIC2 inhibitor. So IL 23 and IL 17 pathway biomarkers, such as IL 17A, BD2, and IL 19, were measured. Um, as well as interferon-inducible chemokines uh, like CXCL9 and CXCL10. Um, Other inflammation pathways were explored, so IL-6, CRP, and TNF-alpha, and then markers of uh, uh, joint damage and tissue function, uh, such as MMP3 and uh, C4M. So the um, study showed uh, that There were uh, significant reductions uh, in IL-17A, IL-19 and BD2 in patients treated with ducravacitinib as compared to placebo. Uh, So that was good. Um, That's what we expected. Um, There were also reductions seen in um, type one interferon inducible proteins uh, as compared to placebo. Um, And, Inflammatory markers uh, such as CRP, IL-6, and TNF-alpha were also uh, significantly reduced in the treated uh, patients. So all of that was consistent with uh, what we expected with the mechanism of action of a TIC 2 inhibitor. Furthermore, one of the things we wanted to look at was whether or not the um, ducrabacitinib affected um, uh, features like um, NK cell counts or hemoglobin um, or uh, uh, lipid uh, profiles uh, such as total cholesterol or liver function, um, all of which have been noted to be affected by uh, JAK1, 2 or 3 inhibitors. And the results of this phase 2 study would suggest that um, these uh, particular parameters were not affected by ducrafacitinib. Uh, and if anything, there was a, um, a small increase in hemoglobin seen in the uh, patients treated with uh, ducrafacitinib. So all that suggests is that this is a highly selective tic 2 inhibitor that doesn't appear to be uh, associated with some of the side effects that have been seen with other uh, JAK inhibitors, which is, which is good. Um, And other safety issues like herpes zoster and serious infections also were not seen in the phase two study. Now this is a phase two study, phase three is yet to come. Um, So we'll just have to see how that goes um, uh, when the phase three study is done. I look forward to seeing those data in due course. I don't know whether that explains the poster, Tony? Yes,
4: Yes, thank you very much. That is uh, very nice to see the uh, biological cytokine effect and then correlating it back to, as you say, the, some of the clinical outcomes. I think the selectivity, we're learning about this new kind of agent, uh, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. We are a bit more uh, experienced in using jack inhibitors. Um, and I think the selectivity, do you think we will see that? And what, what do you predict in terms of uh, in the phase three, do you think that that will come through? Um, obviously, difficult to know without actually doing the study. But in terms of, um, say, for example, infection risk, that we are slightly more some concerns if the jack inhibitors. Do you think we will see uh, maybe less of that with this?
5: I, I, I would anticipate that we will see less of it, and um, the uh, I think that relates to the uh, specificity of the uh, inhibitor for tick two, and it doesn't seem to spill over to. Blocking uh, other um, Jak one, two, or three um, uh, 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 proteins, I guess, are not being affected in the same way um, as uh, with other uh, Jak inhibitors. So, yeah, I'd be I'd be hopeful it'll it'll
4: work out well. Which is would really be good news for our patients, and I suppose the patient selection will also factor into that. Uh, whether they have other comorbidities or anything else yeah. associated with infection it, risks.
5: Exactly, and that's, that's obviously a, a big concern in some of the patients that we treat is that they do have, not infrequently, comorbidities that um, may determine which medication you might or might not use.
4: Yeah, so um, so a new, a new therapy, we look forward to phase three studies. And if you could think about these uh, patients, uh, do, you know, where would this treatment be sort of best place in uh, we have increasing number of uh, agents now to use mm. in psoriatic arthritis. Yeah. Uh, if you had to kind of um, decide on where best to treat them, where would you think this would fit or could it fit anywhere along the pathway?
5: Um, well, at this point, I don't think we can be specific enough with the information that we have as to which, uh, where this medication would best sit. Um, the fact that it, it seems to be, Uh, in particular targeting the IL-23, IL-17 pathway would suggest that, you know, it may be effective in particular for those patients who have um, skin disease, um, axial disease. These are diseases that, you know, the IL-17 inhibitor appears to be uh, quite effective, but that's not to say that it, you know, might also be effective, particularly effective in patients who have uh, uh, bad joint disease. So, I I think there's still a a lot we need to learn about the medication.
4: Yeah, so it's uh, very nice to also see that there are other abstracts on the same agent, Ducrovisitinib, looking at um, some of the uh, other sort of patient related factors, um, and also sort of more holistic uh, assessment of the patient. So we do look forward to um, seeing more data coming up for this um, treatment. Uh, were there any other highlights for you at ACR21 uh, in terms of um, psoriatic arthritis?
5: Um, yeah, I went to a um, couple of sessions um, that that I found found certainly of interest. Um, one of the sessions of which I think we'll be hearing a lot more about is the use of uh, PET CT scanning. I don't know whether you 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 might have seen that one. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. in patients with psoriatic arthritis. I think some f- fantastic um, images were shown of the uh, specificity of the, this PET CT for um, uh, areas of inflammation, whether it be in the, in, the, uh, in the joint or in the spine or in some of the images in the um, vessels that um, appeared to be uh, taking up uh, the marker as well. It was the FTG marker. Um, so, yeah, and no, I think that's something that, you know, could could prove, you know, as was suggested by the presenter, Siba um, Rattachuri, that, um, uh, you know, it could be useful in um, picking out patients who are, um, you know, who have psoriasis, who may be in the process of developing psoriatic arthritis. So, um, that, that could be one particular uh, benefit of using PET CT scanning, or it could be in following um, patients' response to treatment. And I think he had a, a nice, a, a nice slide where um, the uh, activity showing on PET CT was down-regulated by. I think it was an anti-TNF therapy. Um, so very interesting, uh, very interesting images, and I thought that was good.
4: Um, yeah, it was a very, very interesting talk. Yeah. And I think it showed the burden of disease in psoriatic arthritis that a lot of subclinical disease is probably more than what we think. And I think that my takeaway from that was that the PET CT could be used of uh, in in terms of quantification of burden of disease. Um, and I think they made a comparison with ultrasound and the differences between the two. So yeah. clearly, more more work to come in this area. Yeah, I mean, ultrasound um, is great, but you know, it needs to be yeah. focused,
5: doesn't it? You need yeah, to focus yeah. the ultrasound on the joint and, or whatever mm. you're looking at, whereas this was looking at everything all at once, so it mm.
4: looked look good.
5: Yeah. Sorry, well, yeah, you well, were well, assessment.
4: Un- Yeah, was there anything else uh, before we kind of come to the end of our interview? Were there any other highlights uh, that you'd like to share with us from ACR21?
5: Um, Well, I'm going to mention a further abstract of our own (laughs) Um, where where we looked at um, uh, biomarkers of uh, radiographic progression. Uh, So this was a study we we conducted with Lilly um, and this was conducted by Grappa um, and uh, by ourselves at UCD and at Aturos, uh, which is a small spin-out company here in UCD. But what we did was we um, looked at, um, we compared, I guess, the uh, uh, proteins being expressed um, at baseline in a uh, small number of people who, whose disease progressed as com- radiographically as compared to those that did not and showed that there was a panel of proteins that appeared to be present at baseline that predicted um, progression uh, to radiographic damage. And I think that potentially uh, could be important as well. Um, So something that we will need to uh, follow up on with a larger cohort, but um, the ability to predict which patients are going to progress radiographically has been um, a a goal of uh, GRABA for quite some time. So this is perhaps making some progress in that direction.
4: Yeah, so that hopefully will get us closer to more personalized medicine in Precisely. terms of choosing our therapies and then kind of following them. And hopefully, we'll get some candidate proteins from your sort of study to kind of target on in the future. Precisely. So thank you very much, um, Oliver. It's a great pleasure to talk to you, as always, um, on Thanks the updates uh, on psoriatic arthritis. So, I'm Anthony Chan, and it's a great pleasure to have Professor Fitzgerald with us this afternoon. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you.